we're in a crisis of free speech and due process and equality and meritocracy in America. In this episode, I sit down with Professor Emeritus of Law at Harvard Law School, Alan Dershowitz. He's the author of Get Trump, The Threat to Civil Liberties, Due Process, and Our Constitutional Rule of Law. Independent voters will look at some of these charges and say, gee, where there's smoke, there's fire. But of course, where there's smoke, sometimes there's arson. We discuss the many cases being litigated against Trump, what his vulnerabilities actually are, and the broader assault on civil liberties. Justice Thurgood Marshall said, the First Amendment has two sides. One, the right to speak, and two, the right to listen, the right to hear. People who have been denied the right to hear have the power to bring lawsuits. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. Before we start, I'd like to take a moment to thank the sponsor of our podcast, American Hartford Gold. As you all know, inflation is getting worse. The Fed raised rates for the fifth time this year, and Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is telling Americans to brace themselves for potentially more pain ahead. But there is one way to hedge against inflation. American Hartford Gold makes it simple and easy to diversify your savings and retirement accounts with physical gold and silver. With one short phone call, they can have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k. American Hartford Gold is one of the highest rated firms in the country with an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they'll give you up to $2,500 of free silver and a free safe on qualifying orders. Call 855-862-3377, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Again, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Alan Dershowitz, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. Thank you. My pleasure. Alan, in your new book, you make the case that the emergence of Trump onto the political scene somehow uniquely broke the system and, you know, threatens the very basics of civil liberties right now. So let's start with this. OK, what was it that caused this break in the system? Well, People who oppose Trump think that he poses a unique danger to American uh, democracy. Uh, they are ahistorical. They don't look back. Uh, since the beginning of the American Revolution, uh, there have been those who've tried to suspend the Constitution based on the fear that there's something unique happening. And of course, the Constitution is designed for unique experiences. It's designed to protect Japanese Americans against being put in camps during the Second World War. It's designed to protect against McCarthyism. It's designed to protect against President Wilson's uh, efforts to try to uh, prevent immigrants from coming uh, to the United States. It's designed to protect against Jim Crow. It's designed for, for crises. And um, it, it's supposed to be uh, a constant that we don't alter and change except through constitutional amendment uh, to deal with uh, crises. And there's nothing unique or special about Donald Trump. I voted against him twice. I'll vote him against him a third time. He was defeated for president. The system is working. We don't need to suspend the Constitution. We don't need to pretend that there are no more civil liberties uh, in order to protect ourselves against a candidate that some of us don't like. The answer is vote against him. We've seen this very significant erosion of, of civil liberties, right? And you kind of, this is one of the themes throughout your book, you trace, you know, different ways in which this has happened. Um, why don't you tell me, you know, where you see this being most acute or most problematic at the moment? Well, it, uh, I, the title of my book, I named my book Get Trump. It's not that I'm a creative title maker. Uh, Get Trump comes from the campaign promises of both the attorney general and the district attorney of New York. They both campaigned on the promise to get Trump regardless of the facts. Show us the man and we'll find you the crime, as LaFrenti Beria said to Stalin. Um, these two uh, elected officials, both of whom I know and like personally, uh, decided that the most important thing for their election and now their reelection 
is to assure the American public that they will get Trump and Trump will not be allowed to run for uh, president. And they investigated and investigated and investigated. And the attorney general of New York found nothing criminal and didn't go after him criminally. The district attorney of New York, Alvin Bragg, made up a crime, made up a crime, never before used in American history. That is failure to disclose an affair uh, and paying hush money for to cover up that affair and then not listing it on corporate forms. It's never happened before. We've had cover-ups and hush money since Alexander Hamilton paid the Reynolds family a fortune of money to prevent his adulterous affair from coming out. Can you imagine what the how, how history would have been changed if Hamilton was required to disclose that on his forms? He actually decided to disclose it in a pamphlet, but that was his decision. But never in history has anybody ever been indicted for a misdemeanor or a felony for failing to disclose an adulterous affair? And then all kinds of criminal cases built around it. The theory is, well, he, he didn't disclose it because he was trying to cheat on his taxes two years hence, or he didn't disclose it because he was trying to cheat on uh, electoral rules. Uh, it's all speculative, and it's the worst indictment I have seen in 60 years of practicing and teaching criminal law. And when a Democrat who is elected goes after the man who's about to run against his boss, his chief, the head Democrat, Joe Biden, who I intend to vote for, when you go after the man who's running against him, you better have the strongest case in American history. And instead, they have the weakest case in American history. And uh, it is destroying the trust that Americans have in our criminal justice system. It's weaponizing our criminal justice system for partisan and political ends. You know, I can't help think about James Comer, the head of the House Oversight Committee, has been talking about recently. I mean, he's basically saying he's subpoenaed uh, the FBI director to give this unclassified document, which he believes, based on whistleblower information, will show a kind of a criminal scheme that perhaps President Biden or his family were involved in. Okay, so the, the reason I'm asking about this right now, this also it involves a sitting president, and it also involves, you know, potential political machinations, but also involves potential criminal behavior. How do we deal with stuff like this? Well, first of all, I'm not in favor of targeting Hunter Biden or Joe Biden. Uh, let the investigations continue and let the chips fall where they may. But um, Hunter Biden should not be prosecuted unless others have been prosecuted for similar uh, a conduct. And uh, so I'm I, this tit for tat. We'll go after you. You go after us is hurting our system. You know, today it helps the Democrats. Tomorrow it'll help the Republicans. But every day it hurts Americans. My question is, in a situation where there would be some sort of credible allegation that involves some sort of criminal conduct, I'm saying at the same time, there's this reality of someone being a sitting president, which you you know outline in the book. There's a different reality for presidents or even presidential candidates that have to be considered because of the gravity of what they're doing in their office. Right. At the very least, you have to make sure this is not the first time these laws have been used. In the Hunter Biden case, for example, it seems fairly clear that he made a mistake, uh, that he said he had no drug problems on his gun application, when in his book he admitted he had serious drug problems. Do people get prosecuted for that? Uh, probably not. But if your name is Hunter Biden and you're the son of the president, people are gonna look extra carefully at your conduct. Um, but I think the law should apply equally. No one is above, but no one is below the law. We shouldn't have different rules. Um, now, but in one sense, we do have different rules. If you're the president or you're running for president, the case against you better be very strong. It has to pass what I called in my book, Get Trump, the Clinton test and the Nixon test. The Nixon test is the reason he was almost impeached and would have been impeached is because Republicans, people in his own party, were demanding that he leave office. It was so clear it was bipartisan. That isn't the case here. And the Clinton test is, you know, she was not indicted, even though what she did, according to Comey, was wrong, but it wasn't criminal. Her handling of 
classified material and her computer and her server and all of that. And you have to demonstrate that what Trump did is considerably worse than what Clinton did. And I don't think either of those tests surpassed. And in my book at Trump, I go through them in great detail and show why those criteria have not been met. And I would like to see kind of a disarmament on both sides uh, and, and stop weaponizing the criminal justice system, either against Donald Trump or against Hunter Biden or against Joe Biden. Let the public decide. Let's have elections. The public decided one way in 2016 for Trump and another way in 2020 against Trump. I predict that if Trump runs again against Biden, uh, Biden will win this time again. No, no, no one knows. No one knows how the health situation will develop. No one knows how the China situation, the economic situation. No one knows if there'll be, God forbid, another pandemic. So elections are unpredictable, but elections are the constitutional method of deciding who should be president, not some local TA sitting in his office in downtown New York rummaging through the statute books and trying to figure out if there's any conceivable, conceivable case against them. And if there isn't, let's make one up. That is such a distortion of the American criminal justice system, something I've been familiar with for more than 60 years. I've taught 10,000 students criminal law, including several who are now serving in the United States Senate, in the White House, and on the Trump campaign team. And I think I know a little bit about criminal law historically, and we've never seen anything like this in our history. Uh, it's worse than McCarthyism, because McCarthyism looked to the past. It was an old phenomenon. It looked to see whether people lived in communists in the 1930s. This kind of new McCarthyism is much worse, because it involves young people, the future, the people who will be our next presidential candidates, who will be the editors of the New York Times, who will be involved in the most critical positions of government. And they are living at a time when free speech is being neglected, due process is being ignored, the Constitution is being stretched, the criminal law is being abused. That's a heck of a way to send young people into positions of power and governance. That's why I'm so concerned uh, for my children and grandchildren's um, um, uh, eras. Um, you know, I'm at the end of my era. I can fight back. But I'm worried about people today who are in their 30s and 40s and 20s and even younger, the future that they face uh, in academia, the future they face today uh, in, in science uh, has become so distorted by politics that nothing today is not political. Nothing today is not partisan. So, Alan, you prompted me to look and try to figure out how many actual cases Trump is involved in at the moment. And it's actually kind of an amazing number, both at the federal, you know, regional, municipal level, and also criminal and civil. And I want to cover at least a few of them with you in a moment. The thing that I wanted to touch on is not so much the Hunter Biden uh, situation specifically, but this what happens in a situation where there are credible criminal allegations of, for example, a sitting president. And of course, there's political motivation as well involved. Um, and this is something that was done perhaps as when they were vice president or, or at an earlier time. How do we deal with that in this current environment? Nobody knows the answer to that question. The Constitution is not clear as to whether a president can be put on trial or indicted while he's the sitting president. There are some precedents. Uh, president uh, Clinton um, was allowed to, made to participate in depositions and uh, civil proceedings for allegations of events that occurred before he was president. That was a nine nothing Supreme Court decision and it was dead wrong. Every single one of the justices got it wrong. And I predict that over the next 10 years, that nine nothing decision will be reversed and a sitting president will not be able to be subjected to uh, lawsuits based on his sexual misconduct allegations uh, 10 or 10 years, 20 years earlier. That was a serious mistake by the justices of the United States Supreme Court. You know, as, as, as Justice Jackson once said, uh, we're final not because we're always right. We're always right only because we're final. And they were wrong. They just got it wrong. So I think the Justice Department has now said that you cannot prosecute a sitting president. Uh, they've said it relating to conduct that 
occurred while he was president. The question is, can you indict a sitting president for conduct that occurred before he was president? Well, that happened, of course, with Spiro Agnew. Um, he left the vice presidency because he was threatened with prosecution for corrupt conduct that occurred while he was governor of Maryland. So the law is not completely clear, but uh, it, it looks like probably there can be some actions, legal actions taken against the sitting president. That's a mistake. Everything should be put off and uh, they should wait until after he finishes working for the people because presidency is a 24-7 job. Uh, I was one of Clinton's advisors and lawyers uh, when he was impeached, and I could see what an impact it had on his ability to govern. He was thinking about his cases all the time, and that shouldn't be the way somebody who's elected to work for the people has to spend their time. You know, I can't help but think about the Trump presidency and how, you know, obviously a very significant portion of it was spent dealing with impeachments, dealing with uh, special counsel investigations into Russiagate and so on and so forth. Some people argue that, you know, it ate up, you know, at least half of the time or something like that. Well, it ate up some time. There's no doubt. Um, I can give you my own personal experience. In my case, I agreed to represent uh, President Trump on the floor of the Senate on one condition, that he not in any way interfere with my representation, that I'm going to plan my defense, I'm going to make my talk, and I'm not going to show it to him or his legal team before I do it. Either he has to trust me or I won't do it. And he accepted that condition. And so we had no contact, uh, literally, in the days before uh, I spoke for him on the floor of the Senate. Uh, the next day, he called me and, and thanked me and and, uh, and asked me to thank him for making me famous. But that's typical, typical Donald Trump. But it did take time. It took energy. Um, there were calls. Uh, there were meetings with his lawyers. Um, and in both cases, the impeachments were unconstitutional. In the first case where I defended him, the impeachment simply was not for a treason, bribe, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. And in the second case... Um, it was for protected speech, a speech that was protected under the First Amendment. So um, I think that the Democrats in Congress acted unconstitutionally in going after uh, Donald Trump, which is why I became involved in the first case. I didn't become involved in the second case for two reasons. First, I don't generally represent people a second time. I like to represent people only once. But uh, second, I did not want to be in any way involved in any claims that the election was unfair. I think the election was perfectly reasonable. I think that Trump uh, lost uh, legitimately, Biden won legitimately, and I didn't want to be associated in any way with claims that uh, Biden was not a legitimate president. No, I'm, I'm, I'm very familiar with your uh, position on the, on the election and so forth. Let's look at these indictments. I mean, the one that you focus greatly on is, uh, of course, the one that involves the Mar-a-Lago raid. And you say that the fault is, was with the Justice Department for seeking the search warrant in the first place. I thought that was fascinating. Can you explain this whole picture to me? Yeah, and normally in a situation like this one, uh, the government just gets a subpoena, and it's easy to get a subpoena. You serve the subpoena, and then the president or whoever gets the subpoena is obliged to turn over material. Uh, as Merrick Garland himself said, search warrants are a last resort because they are lawless, essentially. Police go into the house, search for everything, and take everything, take lawyer-client privileged material, take spousal privileged, could take religiously privileged material, and that's why subpoenas are preferred over search warrants. Now, in this case, they claim that they worried that the president might destroy material. And there's now an ongoing investigation, which is the one investigation that I think poses some danger to um, uh, Donald Trump. The investigation uh, calling, giving immunity and, and subpoenaing uh, former employees or even current employees of Mar-a-Lago to try to prove uh, that he moved boxes or ordered boxes to be moved. I don't know whether any of that's true or not, but if it were to be proved true, that could pose a, uh, a serious uh, problem of criminal liability under obstruction of justice for President Trump. But at the time I wrote my book, Get Trump, that investigation was not ongoing. All the investigation was focused on 
was the um, failure to disclose the fact that he had classified material in his possession. And that, I don't think, would result in a criminal prosecution because President Biden and former Vice President Pence also had classified material in their possession. And you can't go after one without going after all three. What would it look like if the shoe were on the other foot test? I find this to be extremely useful in many parts of life, actually, not just in the legal context. Yeah. Um, yeah. But this is this is kind of the perfect example because, of course, we have uh, the dis discoveries or disclosures from the Penn Biden Center, and we have uh, uh, classified information. This is a sensibly mishandling of that, and so we have these two cases, and you actually juxtapose those in in your book as well. Yeah, no, you have to do that. Um, you know, the shoe on the other foot test is a variation of a book written by the great philosopher John Rawls, who says that, you know, rules have to be applied absolutely equally and uh, without regard to who they're being applied uh, to. And the shoe on the other foot test is simply a colloquial way of demanding absolute equal justice for all, regardless of race, gender, party. Uh, or any other uh, irrelevant factor. And, you know, we live in a world today where those are the factors that matter. Today, it matters more whether you're a Democrat or Republican or black or white or a male or a female as to whether or not you'll be sued or indicted um, than guilt or innocence sometimes. And so, you know, we live in a post-equality world today where equity is taken over from equality. I don't even know what the word equity means. All I know in practice what it means is inequality. It means judging people based on uh, on the color of their skin or their gender or their religion or their uh, political affiliation rather than on neutral principles. So uh, I'm opposed to the way in which uh, diversity, uh, equity and inclusion have been used to create a systemically racist country. You know, we were a systemically racist country up through the 1950s and maybe even the early 1960s. Then we became a systemically anti-racist country from the 60s, basically, to uh, this century. Now we're going back to being a systemically racist country where everything is seen through the prism of race. You can call it reverse racism, but it's racism. It's people are being judged today by race. Martin Luther King's dream has become a nightmare. Uh, today, medical students are judged uh, by, by their race and by their gender and by their sexual orientation. Scientific papers are being judged by the race of the people who wrote them rather than the quality of the science. Uh, Einstein's theory of relativity would probably be rejected today because he's a white male, a white Jewish male in today's hierarchy of identity politics. Well, the really interesting thing about that is that the actual it's the politics that actually matter most, because you look at how, for example, black conservatives are treated by the system, right? No, there's no question about that. People, when you group people, when you say the blacks, the Jews, the gays, you're being a bigot. Uh, there's no such thing. I'm a Jew. Um, and. I don't speak for other Jews and they don't speak for me. We happen to share a common heritage and a common uh, religion, but uh, our, our politics, our life experiences are, are, are quite different. So please don't group me. And I think I've heard from many of my African-American friends the same thing. Don't group us. I've heard that from my feminist friends. Um, no, feminists can be very different in their orientation. I've heard it from my gay friends. So uh, one of the great problems in our new racism and our new identity politics is that we don't treat individuals as individuals and as people. We treat them as members of a group that they can't get out of because we're stereotyping them and putting them behind the prison walls of that group. Well, and, and in the process, and this is another thing I, I really appreciated about what I read in your book, is that we lose kind of all semblance of nuance and his inability. For example, you give the example of how you opposed many of the Trump administration policies, but you supported their Middle East policy and Israel policy largely, including the moving of the embassy, for example, to Jerusalem and so forth. And this is kind of like what one would expect we would normally do, right, is basically pick the things that we value and promote them and pick the things we don't like and act to subordinate them, I suppose. Well, in this, in that, what is it now? Sixty years that I've been voting. I voted for 
for John Kennedy in 1960, so I guess it's 63 years that I've been voting. I've never liked a candidate. Uh, I've never liked a political party. I've always picked the lesser of the two evils. Um, I evaluate all the factors. Uh, I liked a lot of things about John Kennedy. There are a lot of things about John Kennedy I didn't like, particularly regarding his personal life. Uh, there were a lot of things about Lyndon Johnson I liked, a lot of things I didn't like. Um, I would say every single candidate I've ever voted for, I voted for based on nuance, but today nuance is out the window. You have to pick sides. You know, I, I once said, it's like the Red Sox and the Yankees. You have to pick a team, the Red Sox or the Yankees. But even that's not true because I was a Red Sox fan. But when Jeter or Mariano Rivera came out, I would give them a standing ovation. I understood what greatness was on other players on the other team. Today, that couldn't happen. Today, if you say, if you're a Democrat and you say Donald Trump did anything good, you've committed kind of political treason. And the same thing is true on the other side. If you say anything good about Biden, and, you know, that puts me in a situation where I'm a man without a country. I have a country, but I'm a man without a political party because I don't agree with everything Biden has done. I don't agree with everything Trump has done. On balance, I prefer the Democrats to the Republicans, but it's oftentimes a close balance. As I've often said, if I were living in Britain, I would be voting conservative. Uh, the conservative party in Britain is closer to my values than the Democratic Party in the United States. The conservative party in Britain opposes the death penalty, is in favor of climate control, uh, is in favor of gay rights, it's in favor of choice, um, it's in favor of separation of church and state, it's in favor of all the things I favor, but it has a tougher economic and uh, foreign policy. That's, that's me. I'm a kind of Jacksonian Democrat, Scoop Jackson, not Andrew Jackson, um, but, um, uh, but I have no party in the United States. But the Conservative Party in England is closer to my views than probably any other political party uh, in, 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 the, in the world, a closer, for example, than any of the French parties are, and even closer than some of the Israeli parties are. So, you know, uh, that's because of nuance. Uh, but I'm not allowed to be nuanced anymore. And if I were back teaching at Harvard, I w for 50 years I taught nuance. I don't know whether students would be accepting uh, the teaching of nuance today, the teaching of calibrated compromise solutions uh, to problems. We live in a world of deep, deep, deep division, and it's, it's, it's a poorer world intellectually, and it's a poorer world in every other way. You know, uh, as you speak, you mentioned uh, John F. Kennedy. Of course, uh, you know, his nephew has thrown his hat in the presidential ring, and actually, you know, his, from, from what I've heard, many of his policies kind of echo what you were just describing except for uh, issues regarding vaccines, where you know, he and I are friends. Uh, we've known each other a long time. I knew his father, um, and I, I, did, I met his uncle, but I didn't know him. I don't agree with him on issues regarding vaccination. We debated that. Uh, you can get that debate. It was banned on YouTube. His part of the debate was banned on YouTube. Mine was allowed, but I refused to allow mine to be shown without his being shown, too. But you can get it on Rumble. So we disagree, but we're friends. And um, I admire many of the things he does, particularly for the environment and um, uh, in other areas. And um, I don't think he'll win. Um, but, you know, with uh, Joe Biden being as old as he is, younger than me, to be sure, but still old by political standards, no one can predict what the world will look like one year from now, which is really when the election uh, begins. One of the things that I, I'd heard about only briefly uh, in, in the past, but you kind of outline in the book is uh, the 65 Project. And I found this whole initiative incredibly disturbing. I don't know if you could outline that for me. Oh, uh, the 65 Project is McCarthyism on steroids. It's a group of radical leftist um, bigoted lawyers uh, who have determined that they will go after and punish any lawyer who defended either Donald Trump or anything relating to the Trump administration. It's as close to McCarthyism as anything I've seen in the years since McCarthyism. And yet people in the 65 Project think of themselves as God's gift to the world and to civil liberties. Um, so they've gone after every lawyer um, uh, who has ever 
defended Donald Trump or anything relating to Donald Trump, including me. Um, they filed a bar complaint against me. I haven't gotten any notice of it, so I don't know if it was actually filed. I read about it in the newspapers, but I haven't gotten notice from any bar association that a complaint has been filed against me. First complaint ever filed uh, against me in uh, my 60-some years of practicing law. And, and obviously the motivation behind it, they're very clear, is because I defended Donald Trump on the floor of the Senate. And so, uh, you know, they, they search and they go through everything and they find anything that they can possibly use as a basis. It's just like McCarthyism, um, but it's worse because, again, it's young lawyers, people who look to the future and people who think they're doing the right thing. And so it's one of the most disgraceful episodes in American uh, history. And I think that lawyers ought to distance themselves from the 65 Project. And I think bar associations ought to look into uh, the 65 Project because it is hurting the right of individuals to be defended. Uh, you know, today it's Donald Trump. Tomorrow they'll go after lawyers who defend people they don't like, uh, people who are conservatives. Um, and so uh, we must attack uh, that and we must attack on, on the basis of principle. You know, the other thing in this vein, if I remember correctly, you say that, you know, the sort of transformation of the ACLU from its original mandate is another one of these, you know, sort of foundational, I think you said even threats to democracy. It is. Uh, you know, the ACLU was, one that was a wonderful organization. It was started by a socialist, but he didn't allow his own socialism to interfere with the mission of the ACLU, which was to defend the rights of all, free speech and due process particularly. I served on the national board of the ACLU. I think I was one of its youngest members and certainly one of its most vocal members when I was on the board of the ACLU. I was one of those who supported defending the rights of Nazis to march through Skokie, Illinois, even though obviously much of my family was murdered by Nazis in Europe. And I hate Nazism more than anything else in the world. But if Nazis are not allowed to march, then Martin Luther King would not be allowed to march. So. I was an active member of the ACLU, an active supporter financially, politically, in every way. The ACLU is now dead, dead in the water. Um, it's transformed itself into a leftist organization that supports only leftist causes, uh, which I support, many of them, gay rights, abortion rights, uh, things of that kind. But it's neglected freedom of speech and due process. It's not present on college campuses, university campuses today where the greatest threats to uh, free speech and due process uh, exist. Fortunately, another organization called FIRE, uh, founded by a friend of mine, two friends of mine, named Harvey Silverglade and Alan Kors, uh, has been taking over and been doing a great job. And I, I, I support them uh, uh, wholeheartedly. And I hope everybody will stop supporting the ACLU. ACLU doesn't need your money. They are one of the wealthiest organizations in the world. They've sold their soul to the devil. Um, in order to make more and more and more and more money, they became more and more an anti-Trump organization, um, which cares far less about the Constitution than it does about defeating Donald Trump. It's a disgrace, the American Civil Liberties Union, and I don't want to in any way be associated uh, with its demise. So this is actually a very interesting question. You know, we've seen many institutions kind of captured by this way of viewing the world, okay? And I wonder to myself, you know, how much of it is ideological, new young people being hired into positions that, as you said, believe they're doing the right thing in this kind of radical transformation of society. Everyone has to believe this one way. If you believe otherwise, you're you're out and you should be, yeah. you know, attacked versus it's actually something that's, you know, financially beneficial, which is kind of what you're you're arguing to some extent oh. with the ACLU here. It's both. It's a combination. I think the leaders of the ACLU are more interested in the money uh, than they are in the ideology. And I think a lot of the young people are interested more in the ideology than the money. And there ought to be an organization that supports uh, women's rights and gay rights, but it shouldn't be the ACLU. The ACLU should support everybody's rights to free speech and due process, whether they agree with their politics or disagree with their politics. I remember the first fight I had with the ACLU on that when I was on the board was when Nixon was being impeached and he was in, named as an unindicted co-conspirator. Now, I was in favor of Nixon's impeachment because I believe he committed 
high crimes and misdemeanors. But I was opposed to him being named as an unindicted co-conspirator because that violated his civil liberties. And that was a big fight. I don't even remember whether we won or we lost, but at least it was a debate. Today, there'd be no debate about that. Of course, Trump should be named as an unindicted co-conspirator, as he was, without a peep from the American Civil Liberties Union or by other civil libertarians. It's not only the ACLU, it's Professor Lawrence Tribe at Harvard, it's um, other professors around the country who used to be civil libertarians, and today their get Trump attitude uh, in, in, in every way trumps their civil liberties. For example, in my book, Get Trump, I quote uh, Professor Tribe. You know, we were friends for many years. I quote Professor Tribe as urging Merrick Garland, the attorney general, to go after President Trump for attempting to murder Vice President Pence. I mean, can you imagine any civil libertarian supporting that kind of a stretching of the criminal law? Now, I'm an expert in criminal law. Professor Tribe is not. Uh, but the idea that 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 he would even suggest the possibility of using the criminal law to go after Donald Trump for attempting to murder. Doesn't he understand what attempted murder is, what the criteria are? It's but but you know it's Trump derangement syndrome. Tribe is a perfectly rational person. You can talk to him about almost any other subject. But when you talk to him about Donald Trump, his his brain becomes a scrambled egg. Uh, by the way, I invented the term derangement syndrome, I would say maybe 20 years ago, and it wasn't in relation to Trump. I invented the term in relation to Israel. I described Israel derangement syndrome. I talked about people like Noam Chomsky, who you can have a rational conversation with. We were friends once too, a rational conversation with about anything, but you mention the word Israel and their brain scrambles, and they no longer can have a coherent conversation. Uh, they throw out terms like fascist and uh, apartheid. And, and ethnic cleansing and, and absurd terms that bear no relationship to the only democracy in the Middle East, the nation state of the Jewish people. So derangement syndrome, from my point of view, started with Israel and then moved to Trump. I think it probably started early with communism. I think that the McCarthy people had communism derangement syndrome. Uh, look, I hate communism. I think it's a horrible thing. I opposed it. I opposed it when I was a student in college. But I defended the rights of people to be wrong. And, but people had a derangement syndrome when it came to communism. They thought that communism uh, was posing an immediate threat to the United States and therefore one that justified uh, bending and stretching and distorting the Constitution. I disagreed with that then and I disagree with it now. Well, let's touch on the most recent of the derangement syndrome, COVID derangement syndrome, an incredible loss of civil liberties surrounding, you know, COVID policy, which is, you know, much of which hasn't come back yet even. Well, we're going to disagree about that, I think. I wrote a book called The Case for Vaccine Mandates. I'm not in favor of mandating vaccination, certainly not under the current situation. Uh, I don't think that uh, COVID has posed the kinds of danger that smallpox posed back in the early days of the 20th century. And I do think there still has to be some more scientific research. But if we ever did get to a situation, and we're not there, we're not close to it, but if we ever did get to a situation where um, the spread of COVID was endangering the lives of millions of Americans on a daily basis, um, and, and the only way of dealing with it was to mandate um, uh, vaccinations and the vaccinations were absolutely proved to be perfect without any side effects or anything like that. I, what I wrote about is that the Constitution would permit uh, mandating vaccinations with exceptions for religious uh, views um, and perhaps for, and certainly for medical conditions. Um, I have a member of my family who can't be vaccinated for medical conditions and certainly I would exempt them. But I am more on the side of, uh, I mean, I, I wore a mask. I got COVID nonetheless um, um, for going to a, a big party that I shouldn't have gone to and didn't wear a mask for the whole time. My, my wife and I both got COVID. Uh, but look, when you get a situation like COVID, you do get exaggerations on all sides. And I think we've seen exaggerations on both sides. What I would like to see is COVID dealt with as a medical issue. Uh, with the best scientific minds and uh, let each of us at this point make decisions that best serve our interests. I go to the theater now. 
but I wear a mask when I go to the theater. And um, I have friends who go to the theater and don't wear a mask. And I have friends who don't go to the theater at all. That's what democracy is about. Make your own choices relating to the level of risk that you're prepared to take. Well, yeah, and we certainly disagree on the on the mask issue and something I'm trying to follow the scientific literature around quite a bit. The, the issue that I see is the biggest one, though, is that the would-be authoritarians in our society, the people who want to do good and, frankly, want to use take every opportunity, right? Every Never let a good crisis go to waste. For example, COVID, to basically advance a more authoritarian or less civil liberty-oriented agenda. That's what I'm concerned about. I, I am too. And, you know, it was Justice Brandeis, who was a great liberal, who once said the greatest danger to liberty lurk in people of zeal who are intending to do good and think they're doing good, but without understanding of the implications of what they're doing. And those are the hardest people to attack. And in my book, Get Trump, I make that point. I say the people who are out to get Trump, many of them are good people who really think they're doing the right thing. And, you know, you can apply that as well uh, to COVID. Uh, there have been mistakes made uh, with COVID. I, I know that. I know that from personal experience involving a member of my own family. But um, there are uh, also, look, Donald Trump did a good thing by rolling out uh, the vaccination pro process as quickly as, as possible. The ideal is to balance health and civil liberties and never allow one to dominate without considerations of the other being taken into account. Did we get it right? That's for historians to determine. And you and I can continue to disagree about that. But the point about our disagreement is it's a rational disagreement. And, you know, uh, we can have this disagreement. And if you come to New York, we'll have a drink and, 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 and shake hands. I'm not going to cancel you and you're not going to cancel me unlike the way what happened to me on Martha's Vineyard, where I've been going for 53 years. People forget that I went to Martha's Vineyard to represent a Democrat, a man named Ted Kennedy, who had driven off the bridge in Chappaquiddick. That was my first visit to Martha's Vineyard. I've been there almost every summer since. And now I'm persona non grata in the town of Chilmark in Martha's Vineyard. The library has banned me. The library has banned my books uh, just because I defended Donald Trump. Uh, and people won't talk to me. People have said to the restaurant that I frequent, if you ever serve Alan Dershowitz in this restaurant, we won't come here again. It's pure left-wing McCarthyism. And you and I can disagree without refusing to have dinner with each other. I hereby accept any dinner invitation you offer to me, and I hope you would do the same for me. 100%. And so actually, let me ask you about this. We've actually just completed a documentary on the, the phenomenon that people that have been vaccine injured are not getting the societal and or medical support that they does need and deserve. And this they is should. actually a pretty widespread phenomenon, a kind of much larger than, frankly, I even realized and expected once we actually started looking. And the, because there's this kind of social stigma, right? Like a lot of people are afraid to talk about it when they do talk about it. Their doctors, some of the doctors don't even realize that this could be a possible reason why the person is existing the symptoms they are because of, I, I think, the social conditioning, right? And, and the, a, right, go ahead. A good point. No, it's an interesting and, and good point. And again, I've experienced this um, with a, a member of, of my family. Fortunately, you know, we have the resources to get the best medical care, uh, but there have been people who have been hurt by the vaccine. That's inevitable. Uh, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Uh, I grew up during polio. And a friend of mine, a childhood friend of mine, died after being in an iron lung for several uh, weeks. Um, it was a terrible, terrible time in America. Uh, Philip Roth wrote a great, great novel about the polio epidemic in the United States. And of course, then the Salk vaccine uh, came along and everybody blessed Salk. He was the American hero. Um, but inevitably, some people were hurt by the vaccination or by the Sabin vaccine. In every vaccine in history, that has been the case. Um, I have a letter on my wall. I have a wall of historical documents. And this letter, uh, written by George Washington, actually dictated by George Washington, signed by him, but written in the hand of his young assistant, a kid named Alexander Hamilton. Uh, in the middle of the war, he urges that all of the troops be inoculated against smallpox. 
essentially saying we won't lose the war to the British, but we might lose it to smallpox if our soldiers uh, can't fight. So, you know, there is a place for inoculation. There's a place for vaccination. But I assure you that some of the soldiers who were who were vaccinated against smallpox either died or suffered serious injuries. There are trade-offs. And uh, both sides need to understand that uh, compromises are essential and, and they have to be done consistent with civil liberties. And so um, I think, you know, looking at the, the people who have been victimized have to be given the best, the best treatment. They, they are heroes of this process. Uh, who, the way soldiers are injured during the war, people are injured when you, when you have to fight a contagious illness. A lot of the data that I'm seeing coming out lately really makes me concerned about the kind of the whole conception of, I guess, the very least most recent round. But let's not, now we're, we're, we're deviating a bit. Sure. I want, I, <laughs> One thing that I do want to make is that science has to provide the answers to empirical questions of this kind. There was an article recently in the New York Times about how science is becoming politicized, how papers are being rejected because they weren't written by people with the right identity or the right background. We see now that Oscars are being awarded uh, based on identity uh, politics. Uh, um, all kinds of medical school residencies are being granted based on identity politics rather than on meritocracy. We're seeing a major attack on meritocracy and on science, on science. And I think we all agree that the answers to these questions have to be based on the best non-politicized science. I think on this point, Alan, we are in 100% agreement, and, and I deeply hope that we can get back to that and certainly hope that public health can get back to that, because this is one of the institutions that's been you know, deeply harmed over the last I several years. Um, I, I want to jump back to some of these uh, indictments related to Trump. I mean, it's it's a stunning number <laughs> of, of cases running simultaneously. Like, of course, the, the people who are running them would say, look, look at all the terrible things he's done. Of course, he deserves all of these. Joe Biden had a good line uh, during that press uh, humorous event in Washington. He said employment is way up and that doesn't even count all the lawyers who have been employed to defend Donald Trump. So uh, he, he agrees, I think, that there have been many, 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 many legal proceedings against Trump. And in my book, Get Trump, I point to all of them and argue that if this man were not running for president, none of this would have been happening. Or if he, if he had decided to stay in the building business, uh, he'd have had a happy retirement uh, with his um, children and family and never would have seen the inside of a courtroom. And now that's all he seems to be looking at are lawyers and uh and courtrooms. You mentioned Bragg's case. We've talked about the Mar-a-Lago raid. That was at the federal level. What about this case brought, uh, brought by New York Attorney General Letitia James? Well, that's a civil case. And, um, you know, it uh, will be resolved civilly, probably by some kind of a settlement. I don't think he has anything to worry about with that except time. Um, the, the other two cases that he does have to worry about, though, are the Fulton County case, where I think he is, um, there's no way he can be prosecuted successfully there, um, because what he said on the recorded tape was, I need to find, find 11,000 votes. He didn't say invent or concoct. He said, find, find means that they're there, and you just have to look hard to see if you can find them. So I think that's a complete defense there. And I think there's a complete defense to uh, the January 6th investigation that's occurring in Washington, because in his speech, he said explicitly he wanted the people to go to the Capitol to exercise their First Amendment right to uh, to protest peacefully and patriotically. That's a perfectly constitutionally protected speech. So I think his only vulnerability is his trial in New York, because in New York, uh, you can get a grand jury to indict a hand sandwich. And in Manhattan, you can probably get a petty jury to convict a ham sandwich if his name is Donald Trump. So he's at risk there. But I think that case will be reversed on appeal if there is a conviction. And I think his greatest vulnerability now may lie in the Mar-a-Lago case in Florida, not for possessing classified material, but if they can prove that he obstructed justice after he received a subpoena and after he was aware that the government was interested, 
if there is proof that he moved uh, or ordered the moving or hiding of classified material, that would present a problem, a serious problem for him. And what about this case that's, it seems to be like it will be imminently resolved, uh, Jean Carroll suing Trump for battery and defamation. Actually, there's two cases, another one where she's uh, uh, suing him for defamation again. Yeah, uh, well, those cases never should have been allowed to be brought. Uh, the, the historical purpose of a statute of limitations is to make sure you don't have to stand trial for something that occurred 25 years ago, in this case, even more than that. Um, how do you remember things? How do you know where you were? Maybe he was in Europe at the time. She hasn't even given the dates and the times of the year. She remembers it was a Thursday or a Tuesday or something like that. It's a case that normally would be thrown out. But again, it's Donald Trump. And so there may very well be liability. Again, it's not criminal. He would have to pay some money and go through the appellate process, which would take um, uh, several, several years. So it's the piling on. It's the fact that we have all these cases coming together at a time when he's trying to get the Republican nomination for president. This will help him get the Republican nomination for president because you don't need a majority of people in the country to get you the nomination for either party. You need a, a majority of the people voting in primaries for a particular party, which usually amounts to, I don't know, probably 20% or 25%. He'll get that. And I think these cases help him. I think they hurt him in the general election because I think that independent voters will look at some of these charges and say, gee, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. But of course, where there's smoke, sometimes there's arson. And I think a lot of these fires have been set politically uh, in order to get Trump. I want to jump back to the concept of free speech, which you actually describe very curiously as a dangerous experiment, which almost sounds like you're against it. But of course, you're, you're, you're one of the biggest champions, the most free speech possible. So, so let's start there. And the other thing I want to touch on is, you know, people who are advocates of unfettered free speech, which I'm increasingly becoming one, I have to say, um, will say, well, everything except what's illegal. But that's that feels like a kind of an odd caveat in a way, because it's like saying, well, I can make all sorts of things illegal if that's convenient for me. Right. So, sure, so explain this. That's the way they went after communists. Communists were just people who advocated a different form of government, which I despise, but they had the right to advocate it. But by making communism illegal, they were able to go after people who advocated communism. So, you know, there is a historical precedent uh, uh, for that, uh, a bad precedent to be sure. Look, I'm in favor of uh, unfettered free speech. There have to be some limitations. Um, you can't, um, um, uh, pull a fire alarm uh, improperly. You know, they say shouting fire in the theater. That's a very bad analogy because shouting fire in the theater isn't speech. It's the same as pulling an alarm and pulling an alarm isn't protected. So the functional equivalent shouting fire isn't protected. Shouting fire is not intended as a message to the brain. It's intended as a message to the, to the legs, run, to the adrenal, run. You don't debate fire. No, no, I don't think there's a fire. I think we ought to stay here and burn a lot. No, that's so that's an exception that I think doesn't work. I wrote an essay about that some years ago, and I wrote a book about a cold shouting fire. But there are other exceptions that are acceptable. Direct incitement. If you're uh, if a crowd is surrounding somebody and about to beat them up and you yell at the crowd, kill them, kill them, kill them, and the crowd then kills them one can easily see how that should not be protected. Um, extortion should not be protected. A statement to somebody that says, unless you uh, give me $100,000, I will either make up a story about you or tell the truthful story about you. There are very, very limited exceptions. Uh, child pornography is an exception as well. But for the most part, uh, I'm in favor of untrammeled free speech. Now, I have to admit one thing. You can have a democracy, even if there are some restrictions on free speech. Canada is a perfectly viable democracy, and they have restrictions on hate speech. Germany today is a viable democracy, and they don't permit Holocaust denial for understandable reasons. They were there. They were the ones who caused the Holocaust, the German government, not necessarily the German people. So there are understandable exceptions, and you can have a viable democracy with some exceptions. The problem is the slippery slope. If you start making exceptions for some, 
you have to make exceptions for others. I used to teach a class in which I would start by saying, how many of you favor free speech, everybody? Raise their hands. How many of you would exempt Holocaust denial? Well, some hands went up. How about uh, racism? Hands went up. Sexism? Hands went up. By the end of the class, there were more exceptions than there were the rule. And so that's why I worry about the Canadian uh, approach, uh, even though Canada is a viable democracy. Well, they've just passed a bill, you know, C-11, that's, you know, curtails uh, the free press significantly, I would argue. And many countries have done that as well. Ireland has done that. Um, uh, there have been other countries that have passed restrictions on free speech. We live in an age where free speech is under attack. For the first time in my life, academics are writing against free speech and academics are writing against due process and academics are writing against meritocracy. And again, that represents the future because the academics are writing for students and the students will be our future. And there'll be less appreciation for free speech, due process and meritocracy. I thought that was a very powerful thing you noted. It's, you said that the hard left extremism is much more of a threat because these things are these are people of that are going to go into the future, whereas the hard right extremism is something that's more much more of the past. It, of course, and also nobody supports the shooting into synagogues. Nobody supports beating up Jews or beating up gays or getting up. That's a law enforcement issue. But today on college campuses, people support the anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism of the hard left. They support the anti-conservatism. Um, they support many of the most fundamental denials of civil liberties. You get support even from members of Congress. Uh, whereas you get no support, obviously, for the extremism, the real extremism of the hard right, the violent extremism, which is why I think the left wing McCarthyism is more dangerous than right wing McCarthyism. Yeah, it just stuns me. I always think we're living in this logic of Herbert Marcuse's repressive tolerance vision, so to speak. And nobody knows about Marcuse. I knew Marcuse. He was at Brandeis when I was a young professor at Harvard, and I disagreed with him then, and I disagree with his influence now. Um, the, the same thing is true of Hannah Arendt and, and many others uh, who are horrible, awful people uh, who did awful, awful things. And because they wrote beautifully, uh, they were supported. Hannah Arendt is, and, 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 uh, is a perfect example. Here was a woman who uh, had an affair with the leading philosopher of Nazism and then tried to, um, to uh, uh, recreate his reputation after the war. Gertrude Stein was a Nazi, supporter of the Gestapo. And yet people forget about that. You know, there are no perfect people in history. I wrote a book about that, uh, suggesting to my students that they have no heroes because almost all heroes have clay feet. And... Uh, Again, it's nuance. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was a great man, but he owned slaves. Nelson Mandela was a great man, but he supported terrorism. Uh, Abraham Lincoln was a great man, but he wanted the African former slaves to go back to Africa. Um, find me a person in history uh, who's perfect. One of the reasons I love the Old Testament more than the New Testament and the Quran is that all the heroes of the Old Testament are flawed. Every single one of them is deeply, deeply flawed. You would not want your child to be like Moses or Abraham, certainly not like David. Whereas the heroes of the New Testament and the Quran are flawless. Of course, anybody would want to have a child with the virtues of Jesus or Muhammad. So the real world is better reflected in the Old Testament in many ways than in the New Testament and the Quran. And um, uh, we have to understand that the world is filled with flawed people. And nuance is the essence of any democratic discussion. One of the things you talk about in the book is, uh, you know, why is the left so afraid of Twitter? I thought that was a kind of an interesting rumination. But since you wrote it, a lot more information has come out, uh, which, you know, basically showed how closely government and civil society and, you know, some of these fact checking organizations funded by the government, you know, were basically working to suppress all sorts of inconvenient speech on all sorts of issues. You know, it actually shifted from different topics over time. And there's also these disclosures from, say, Missouri versus Biden, the, the discovery materials showing, you know, similar things. So it's not just the Twitter files. 
there's this almost like a mechanism of manufacturing of perceived consensus that exists in society. And these groups are part of it. And actually, you know, sort of the reinforcement of it in various institutions that perhaps are ideologically aligned helps with that. And that we as human beings are somehow incredibly susceptible to this, some of us a lot more and some of us a lot less. Perhaps those of us that are just inherently very skeptical like you and I less, but, but nonetheless very good, decent people are susceptible to believing all sorts of things that might be untrue, sometimes overnight change their mind. Your thoughts? <laughs> I see that all the time. I have friends who live by the New York Times and National Public Radio. Um, if it's on National Public Radio, it's true. If it's in the New York Times, it's true. Um, these are people who need to have the truth told to them with a capital T. And um, most people are not skeptical. Most people want to have answers to their questions. Some people look to the Bible. Some people look to the Quran. Some people look to the New York Times. Um, and, and some people look to National Public Radio. It's the same phenomenon. And people who, who, I have a friend, uh, a woman friend, she's very, very smart. She's very skeptical of religion. Oh, why should we listen to the rabbis? Why should we listen to the priests? But if it's in the New York Times, I'm not going to question it. Uh, and, and there's a lot of that going around. Um, I think it was Noam Chomsky who many, many years ago, when he was still writing rationally about things, uh, wrote a book called The Manufacture of Consent, which dealt with some of these issues. Uh, again, Chomsky did a lot of good, did a lot of bad, continues to do a lot of bad. Nuance, you need nuance, and we're not we're not getting it. So as we finish up here, Alan, you know, one of the things you mention is that the effect of this whole kind of get Trump mentality, it kind of cre it creates a situation where it's very very difficult to escape this partisanship, to develop nuance again, and so forth. Perhaps the purpose of some of these people is indeed to exacerbate the division, to create division, to shake the foundations of our society to the ground, to re, you know rebuild something new, a beautiful new utopia afterwards. So there's how do no, you deal with that? There's no doubt about that. Um, well, look, Ralph Nader um, basically justified making a Republican president. He could have had Gore as president had he not run. And people on his side were saying, well, we needed to get a Republican or we needed to get Donald Trump so that the revolution can come more easily. There are those extremists, of course. Uh, but I think most people uh, are well-intentioned uh, well uh, and just don't understand the implications of, of, what they're, of what they're doing. I'll give you an example just from my own experience. So uh, my book, Get Trump, was a bestseller on Amazon. As we speak today, it is a bestseller on Amazon, but you can't buy it in a local bookstore. And you can't get it in many local libraries because local libraries today, including my library in Chilmark, Massachusetts, censor books based on their political content. They censor speakers based on their political content. Local bookstores, people have told me they cannot get Get Trump in a local bookstore because a bookstore won't sell a book with the title Get Trump. They have to get it on Amazon or on Barnes and Noble. Uh, and so we see this kind of self-censorship going on. And if you talk to the bookstore owners, they'll tell you, well, well of course we're not going to carry book titles that we, we don't agree with. We'll get protests. People will get upset with us. So self-censorship has become a very, very serious problem. I speak to college students all the time who say they're afraid to speak up in class because they'll be totally dissed and canceled by their fellow students and graded down by their teachers. We're in a crisis of free speech and due process and equality and meritocracy in America. And I hope people will, will read my books because I'm one of the few people today who is liberal, who's from the left side of the spectrum who is a Democrat, who is today speaking up against uh, these dangers. Uh, most of the people who are speaking up against these dangers today are conservatives because they've been the victims of the cancellation and the repressive society. I think one thing we can all get together and agree on is that America is far better 
if we are an open, free society with free speech and due process. One final thought as we finish. You know, one thing that you mentioned in the book, which frankly I hadn't thought much about, there's a right to speak, but there, there's also a right to hear speech. And that's right. the piece that we often don't think about and that you actually explore quite a bit. So maybe leave us off with, with sure. how that other part works, because a lot of people say, hey, you know, I have a right to deny, if I have a large platform, I have a right to deny whatever speech I want, right? Look, take uh, when I defended Donald Trump and uh, other things, I was denied the right to speak in various venues to people who wanted to hear me speak. And um, I can deal with it. I can write op-eds. But what about the people who want to hear me speak or who want to hear you speak or who want to hear other even more controversial speakers speak? Under the First Amendment, Justice um, uh, Thurgood Marshall said... The First Amendment has two sides, one, the right to speak, and two, the right to listen, the right to hear. And the right to hear is just as important as the right to speak. And so people who have been denied the right to hear have the power to bring lawsuits and to try to challenge censorship as much as people who have been denied the right uh, to, to speak. And, um, um, and, and it, the vast majority of Americans today are denied the right to hear points of view that are disagreeable to the people in power. That's true in universities, that's true of newspaper readers, uh, that's true of others as well. And, and so ultimately, a majority of Americans can get together and can fight back. Uh, it shouldn't just be the people who are censored. So thank you for allowing your listeners to hear my voice. You can disagree with me. Uh, we had some disagreements, some agreements, but thank you for your very intelligent questions. And I'm looking forward to coming back again and uh, having an exchange with you. Well, Alan, thank you so much. And at Epoch Times, of course, we're going to be keep uh, offering these uh, different, you know, maybe uh, unfavored viewpoints as, as much as we can. And so Alan Dershowitz, it's such a pleasure to have had you on. Thank you. Thank you all for joining Alan Dershowitz and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek. Mm -hmm.